Welcome to the first podcast of Ideas for 2016. I'm Rob Lyons and I'm joined by my colleagues from the Institute of Ideas, Claire Fox and David Bowden, to chew over the New Year news. Today is the anniversary of the attack on Charlie Hebdo's offices in Paris in which terrorists killed 11 people. A year on from Je suis Charlie, what's become of those high-sounding defences of free speech? It's also been a lively week in Westminster with Jeremy Corbyn's much-hyped shadow cabinet reshuffle amounting to not very much and David Cameron conceding that ministers should have the freedom to campaign for Brexit in the referendum, wherever that may be. Meanwhile, there has been growing calls for attacks on sugar, or at least sugary drinks, with the Times joining the chorus in favour, and Public Health England upping the anti-sugar ante with a smartphone app so you can check everything you eat for its sugar content. And Simon Danchuk, a Labour MP famous for campaigning around historic child abuse cases, has been suspended by his own parliamentary party for sending saucy text messages to a 17-year-old girl. Has he been hoist by his own petard? So, let's start with Charlie Hebdo. Free speech a year on, is it in any healthier state? In some ways I'd say that it is in a a weaker state than it was when uh, the Charlie Hebdo attacks happened. Largely, actually as illustrated by the reaction to it that didn't take long to set in of a series of apologists for what occurred. So in some ways it provided us with a tragic example of the way that being offended can play itself out. On the other hand, you could see very quickly how thin the veneer of Western commitment to freedom of speech has been. Not only have we seen subsequent tragic events in Paris, we've also seen... Uh, various governments using fear of terrorism as a way of clamping down on free speech without any sense of irony. And obviously we had that uh, horrible, uh, grotesque example of the novelists who uh, boycotted the uh, pen event in New York on the basis that Charlie Hebdo's uh, journalists should not be getting a, a reward, arguing that Charlie Hebdo was actually offensive and, although they shouldn't have been shot, you know, it was all very difficult and we had to be very careful about who we uh, offended, particularly when it came to religious minorities and so on. So I feel, I'm not even talking now about all of the madness that's happening on campus, but I do feel that the broad spirit of Je suis Charlie has been very much corrupted along the last year, sadly. Yeah, I, you can really see the impact of it around the Donald Trump stuff, where you have a, a politician who on the one hand, kind of really presents himself as this taking on political correctness, you know, will say anything sort of offensive. On the other hand, has himself a very touchy, rich man's attitude of that he couldn't, shouldn't really be criticised. But when he came out and said the kind of things that Trump comes out with, there has been a campaign to try and ban him from entering the UK. This is a man who could very well be a candidate for the presidential elections when they're when they're coming through and this idea that we couldn't tolerate having a debate with this person this you know somebody who has you know undoubtedly has at least an element of electoral mandate in the United States is a really troubling sign and i think you've also seen the impact of hebdo much more in the kind of concept of that it's in somehow polluting public space. I think that was the, one of the big arguments made around what was offensive about Hebdo is that this was something that was normalised. It normalised Islamophobia in its the fact that it just sat there on on newsstands. You know, there was a sort of a lot of the kind of apologists were you know where you know you can go off and order this stuff online, look at it on the internet, but other people should not have to look at this offensive 
material. And I think when you sort of look at a lot of the campaigns, such as around the road statue, to sort of say that, you know, we can't have this statue of a, a figure who offends us today on university campuses, that entire concept of safe spaces, that's kind of really where it's most palpably been felt today, that people will sort of say, okay, you can have your sort of free speech, but in private, as long as it doesn't get in my face, as long as it doesn't upset me, um, and as long as there's a kind of a rational justification for it. And I think those arguments have become really cemented over the past year, and people have not kind of in any way taken on that sort of spirit of Jessery Charlie in trying to uh, defend it. Yeah, I mean, well, it, it always did seem to be a bit kind of ludicrous when there were all, all these politicians lining up to say just we charlie and the abstract principle of free expression yeah fine you know we're, yeah that's that's good for us to be able to demonstrate that you know we're different from islamic extremists but there's no solidity to it no real sense of what that would mean and so you, you see it's although the stuff on campus has been clearly led by some you know the identity led students What's really striking is the the absence of a real kind of pushback from the people who run universities, and in fact, the people who run universities are you know, largely responsible for creating that climate in the first place of this obsession with offence. So, where do we go from here? I mean, how can we turn this around or change the, the the manner of this debate? Well, I think that one of the things that we have to really be hard on is an increasing tendency towards cultural cringe, and by which I mean that. As you said, I think there was a moment post-Charlie Hebdo, I'm ever the optimist, where you hoped that maybe something as shocking as what happened could make free speech more of a a, a talking point. And in some ways it did, by the way. I I think that some people were galvanised in a pro-freedom way. But but as uh, we've indicated, it was very thin. But very quickly it started to be, well, you know, the problem about Charlie Hebdo and what's happened in Paris is we're worried that there's going to be a backlash against Muslims and then you get the whole Islamophobia thing. And that happened even much more quickly in relation to the recent tragedy in Paris where people were saying, well, this is terrible, it's happened, but we have to make sure that, you know, we don't now attack lots of Muslims. So it's so insulting because it assumes that as soon as some terrible outrage happens that the masses of people can't make a distinction between uh, ordinary Muslim people and and, uh, Islamic uh, extremists. But... There's bending over backwards to ensure that nobody thinks that we're going to offend a Muslim moment is epitomised today, actually, in the papers where it's been announced that the British exam system is to be reorganised around Ramadan. Uh, Muslim students are to be treated differently. Their coursework is to be handed in at a different time. Exams will be held in the mornings and so on and so forth. So you can just see this reorganisation of society around not offending people seems to be the legacy of Charlie Hebdo, um, the very opposite, in fact, of the spirit of Charlie Hebdo. We should also remember that during the course of the year that the uh, an issue of Charlie Hebdo, which uh, made jokes about, uh, you know, satirised the refugee crisis and the way the West was dealing with refugees, in fact, was condemned as racist and viciously attacked by uh, the sort of cultural warriors... And so you, you realise that, you know, Charlie Hebdo was never going to get an exception, exemption at all. It was only if they were going to play nice and say the right thing. So, you know, satire really is dead. In terms of what to do about it, and you're, you're just fine, finally for me. So end the cultural cringe. The point that you've made about the university authorities is a perfect example of spinelessness in the worst extreme in terms of giving in. 
But I think it's also worth noting that in many instances, students are just kicking an open door. I mean, the university milieu, the whole of academia is already rotting from within in many ways. It's already decided that it sort of hates the fact, it hates itself for representing dead white imperialist men, can't contain its own self-loathing. And that seeps out to the students who then have a go at them and they go, yeah, we know, we know, you're so right. I thought it was absolutely fascinating that Yale, they've just abolished the, the term master, as in housemasters of the different houses, on the basis that um, it might offend people because it might be associated with slavery, which would indicate linguistic stupidity is alive and well at Yale because that's not the derivation of the word master in that instance. However, the students kind of gave, gave a petition in and within about five minutes they'd given in because they said, oh no, we've already been discussing this for years. We feel very uncomfortable calling ourselves masters. And so I think we can safely say that the students aren't the problem. They simply embody the problem. And so one of the things that I think we should stop doing is blaming the students and actually look at the real origins of what's happening on campus as being far more scary and deeper. And we've got a harder job on our hands. Yeah, I mean, the irony of a lot of this is also happening with the backdrop of the rise of Islamic State, an increasingly complex situation in Syria, where the kind of whole concept of a blanket mass identity of Muslims who are there to be offended by anything has been really kind of revealed for a, a kind of fictive idea. This you know, this argument, which is rallied around continually, that you cannot display you know offensive images of Muhammad because it will upset all Muslims everywhere who can't handle concepts of free speech. It's actually been challenged on a daily basis by plenty of people inside and outside of Muslim communities who are having live debates about a kind of real culture war because they also are confronted now with a group of genuine religious fanatics who say what you can and can't do. And so, so at the same time that something is happening in, I think, real society where people are still actually having these kind of capable of having these debates, what's happening at the most intellectual strata of society, they're saying you can't have this debate you you know we have to sort of shut that down it will offend someone else and it's people often speaking up on behalf of others um, which drives forward through a lot of these arguments I think you know self-appointed community leaders student activists well-meaning you know politically correct academics across the board they will lead forward on a lot of these attacks and they actually sometimes represent no one and I think that's the kind of that's a sign of positivity because there is actually people who want to have these kind of discussions and debates still going on but you just you know you have to try and kick back against that cultural mood i really was struck by the horrible irony where five syrian muslims were executed on film by a british hindu who decided to have an identity crisis and i put it in the context of identity politics um, and become a jihadist uh, muslim a convert I assert now that it's got nothing to do with religious conversion as we speak, uh, featuring the child of a Christian who'd also become convinced of the need to gain a new identity. I mean, this to me indicates that the problem is identity politics, not Muslims, and that Muslims uh, are often on the receiving end of this vicious Islamic state, but which is... I'm not trying to say Islamic state has got nothing to do with Islam in that straightforward way, but that it is at least far more complicated than the Ummah, or as Dave says, the idea that we would offend Muslims. Let's move on to uh, perhaps more trivial matters. The, the week in Westminster, uh, we've had two 
big announcements or supposedly big announcements this week. One was uh, Jeremy Corbyn's cabinet reshuffle, which turned into a bit of a damp squib, and David Cameron finally admitting that to keep his cabinet together, he's going to have to allow uh, cabinet members to campaign for Brexit. Let's start with Jeremy Corbyn. What did we think of, of that whole affair? Well, the irony of what's happened around kind of Corbyn and the entire way in which the kind of Corbyn sort of political machine sort of operates is very much sort of celebrated this concept of the new politics. Um, and from the word go, the new politics was largely, it seemed, having a go at the media. Um, and it was all about media representations of the party. And yet, at the same time, as much as they make a big deal of the fact that they're, they're not playing the spin game, you know, they've kind of gone on in this kind of ridiculous fashion over a kind of reshuffle, who's in, who's out, made a big deal of the fact they're not going to play the media game. So in a, but in a way that has now meant that we've discussed the reshuffle at considerable length, overshadowing their own announcements over transport policy. We've heard nothing from them about Europe, which is a massive issue, which is telling, you know, is a big issue for the Conservatives and for the country. None of that's going on. We're talking about who's going to be in and who's going to be out of Corbyn's inner circle. And actually, it's a kind of as poisonously obsessed with kind of media politics as, as anything that happened within the kind of Blairite Brownite years. I mean, with that, the fact there's actually even less discussion of the genuine politics going on. So there's, it really kind of speaks to, although I kind of, I dislike the kind of anti-Corbyn sentiments as well, that there's been a kind of an awful lot of your obsessive conviction that it's the sort of 1970s class politics back at play and that he is terrifying. I mean, you can't doubt the fact that this is not really at the moment a political movement gathered around any kind of serious idea to try and transform society. It is at the moment just as obsessed with the kind of Westminster bubble than it ever was. I think the other thing that's extraordinary is I, I'm less, you know, I, if, if Corbyn wants to have a kind of be surrounded by yes people, you know, that's up to him. I, you know, his personal way of running the party, he wouldn't be the first prime minister that's done that. Fine, have a list, sack the people you don't want, and keep the others in. This has just dragged on, hasn't it? So I don't even feel as though he's got what he's wanted because the reshuffle hasn't amounted to a reshuffle. Actually, three people have resigned, so we don't know whether he wanted to sack them or not. It's hard to tell. Hardly anyone's been sacked, in fact. So the whole thing is just a joke. However, there is one bit where I'd have a go at the media, which is that the media have become obsessed with this. So a lot of the it's the longest reshuffle in history question and why are we all sitting waiting? It's like, well, go and do something more worthwhile then. You don't, you're not forced to sit and wait for this reshuffle or to live tweet it or to and so on and so forth. So to a certain extent, these things feed on each other because one of the reasons why we're all obsessed with the reshuffle is because there's a load of journalists who are writing about the reshuffle because there's nothing to write about, saying that it's the longest reshuffle. And in some ways you just think, well, go and write about something else and don't give them any attention. That would be what I would do. But it is the most indecisive indication of leadership. So, you know, he's not authoritarian. He's not authoritarian enough, in my opinion. If you're going to be the leader of a party, lead, make it the odd decision and get on with it so that we can get on with our lives. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it does, the, the whole media charade around the whole thing just is just an, a, yet another reminder of just how much like court politics Westminster has become. That you, it's, it's all about who knows who and, and it's an obsessive discussion with that rather than 
lots of other things that should be being talked about from you know, the now looking slightly parlous state of the economy, that, which is what George Osborne is speaking about today. He's like trying to get his excuses in early, I think, about the fact that things are not going very well, or about the EU referendum, which is actually a serious discussion of free, you know, about the, the future of the UK, which we shall move on to now. I mean, is there anything particularly surprising in the fact that Cameron's had to make this decision about allowing his ministers to campaign for a, an outvote? I don't know if I'm surprised, although I'm pleased. But I'm, I am worried about what's going to happen around the debate around Europe, by the way. I, I, I'm concerned because, you know, the rumours are, and I've no idea, I mean, who, who do I know, but the rumours are that the uh, referendum is going to be sooner rather than later. And whereas at one point I was sort of concerned, oh, the EU referendum debate's going to go on and on and on and on. Now I think, oh, my God, they're going to announce it and there's going to be no time for a proper public debate. So what I want is a debate about Europe. I don't want a debate about Cameron's negotiations. I want a debate, and when I say Europe, I mean whether we should relate to Europe via the EU or whether we should be European in a different way because I'm pro-European, anti-EU. But I want that to be properly... Uh, discussed. I mean, we ourselves have organised our, you know, summer school, our kind of weekend summer school this year, the Academy, uh, in July. We've organised it around the history of the philosophy and ideas of Europe, and the history of Europe, so that we can actually inform ourselves and know a bit more. I mean, the way things are going, the Brexit um, uh, referendum might have happened by then, in which case, anyway, that'll be good because we want to be informed about the history of Europe that we're going to still be in, even if we're not in the EU. But the point I'm making is, is that there's no serious discussion going on in the public sphere about our relationship with the EU. So I'm hoping that Cameron's announcement will now just allow us to get on with that hugely important uh, discussion about democracy, nation states, sovereignty, how we view the the UK uh, moving into the future and so on. Yeah, I think ultimately the the fact that Conservative MPs get free vote and it is a great triumph for democracy. This is one of the most important questions about the role of Parliament today and the role of the British government in relation to European politics. So I think it's entirely appropriate that uh, MPs should feel right to vote on that according to what their principles are and then have to answer to the electorate um, afterwards. And I think what it really kind of gets to the heart of is that there isn't a clear strategy you know, for anyone around this whole kind of referendum. Cameron's had to sort of promise it. He's obviously very strongly keen on retaining membership of the EU but he doesn't have any kind of great powerful ideology behind him on that regard there isn't a kind of clear sense of it I mean ultimately the most frightening thing is that the model that has been used that people are talking about is around the Scottish referendum which is viewed as a great triumph that you know know, that's how they kind of pushed it through when you look at how that was kind of pushed through in the kind of most sort of cynical sort of fear-mongering kind of way that they very nearly lost but who cares that they very nearly lost and have probably you know caused long-term damage to the future stability of the UK they won the referendum political victory for Cameron that's what you'll be looking to repeat and so you're going to see exactly the same kind of processes at work and the same arguments just in the hope that we kind of edge ourselves over the line at the same time there isn't a kind of there's divisions in the in the Brexit 
camp as well. There's not much of a coherent view. Like I say, we have still have absolutely no idea what Labour are going to, to do on the issue, or what Corbyn is actually going to stand for on this one. That's been kept off the agenda, which you know it could be a really decisive move if he decides he wants to come out and make an argument, a left-wing argument against EU membership, then that may make it slightly more interesting, cause even more divisions within the party. But that's what a kind of political debate should be. I fear, and this is, you know, ultimately is the kind of sort of fear that is going to come from the whole thing, is that there is not going to be the kind of good debate. There's the frightening prospect we may face Brexit without ever having considered the ramifications of that. It may at least make it actually more interesting, because as soon as that happens, we actually have to confront the reality of that, and there are interesting things afoot. But I, you, you suspect that what's going to happen is that the kind of the in crowd are going to just make it over the line. It's not going to settle any of the kind of political arguments over sovereignty. It's just going to be used as a way of closing down debate on it for a generation or so. And I think that that's really unhealthy for kind of long term future of democracy and 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 you know kind of freedom of of thought and and politics. Yes, let's hope that democracy gets a, a bit of a mention in this uh, referendum debate. I, I, you know, as you said, from the, the discussion that happened over the Scottish referendum, it, it could easily turn into a very, very narrow debate about are we slightly better in or slightly better out. But we will return to the EU referendum many times over the course of the, the year in this podcast. Let's move on, because I, I, I thought it was worth noting the there's been a sort of flurry of anti-sugar stuff this week. Start, start of the week, I think it was like the third story on BBC Breakfast News, which really struck me, was the launch of an app, a smartphone app. And out of all the things that... B- I know BBC Breakfast News isn't necessarily the most cutting edge of news uh, broadcasts, but nonetheless, smartphone apps don't normally make it to the third item. But this, this smartphone app is launched by Public Health England and their Change for Life campaign, uh, which is to, to allow users of this app to like scan the barcodes of various different food items, and find out how much sugar's in them. Now, this may be a bad case of over-engineering a solution to a problem, since you can just read on the label of the product. If it's got a barcode, it'll also have a label, which will tell you how much sugar is in it. But actually, this is really propaganda, and it was the launch of a week of propaganda about uh, sugar. So Cancer Research UK has come out with some new figures about obesity, which are as ludicrous as all the previous forecasts about obesity. Um, the Times, you know, once the the embodiment of conservative Britain has now come out and said, you know, the time is right now for a, a tax on sugar. It's absolutely bizarre, this kind of mass packing of public health around this particular issue uh, in the last few days. Uh, what are your thoughts about this? Well, I, I mean, you know, uh, happy, joyless New Year, as usual, uh, which is, is that let's start the new year by giving everybody a lecture about how they're killing themselves by what they eat, uh, especially things that are enjoyable to eat, like sweet things. Uh, that's that's inevitably um, what the message is. But rather crassly, if I can link it to our Charlie Hebdo discussion, and I and I say this logic because I'm, I'm just in the end of finishing writing a short book, gulp um on on um, free speech and i've ended up writing a whole section on obesity which you might think oh how's that work out then so anyway you know we wonder why young people grow up to demand safe spaces at universities well they've been reared on a culture that tells them that they're under threat from everything 
and something as innocuous as sugar is one of the things that they're constantly, as young people, being told is going to kill them. Everything's terrible. We need to protect you from these dangers like sugar. And then we wonder why they end up going to university and going, we need to be protected. We want safety. And guess what? Um, and, and so what really struck me about the app was, do we really want a society of young people or anybody, any age, wandering around supermarkets over-obsessively checking their sugar intake and that's what they're trying to encourage you to do as you say it's not practical but it encourages this constant self-obsession with threat and that everything we do and therefore we've got to check and we've got to and so on and so forth so what a waste of technological solution that's what i'd say there must be better things to do uh, with apps than that what struck me as very amusing as well was that kind of way in which statistics uh, get bandied about. So there was that kind of the one that kind of grabbed all the headlines was this was one about sort of children from ages four to ten eat their own body weight in sugar every single year. And, you know, this is that kind of outrageous. And obviously you hear that and you go, that's appalling. And they kind of went on about how you know terrifying this was. And at the end, they sort of just mentioned in passing, you know, it's recommended that you only eat a third of your body weight in sugar each year. And you kind of thought, well, you know, a third of your body weight in sugar sounds quite a lot, but apparently that's sort of fine. So maybe actually having two thirds over in which sugars are. And you suddenly just thought this is not, I'm not sure what information that I've kind of been given about this because I don't really know about what the, what the kind of real issues are because it's all very complex around what sugar is good, what sugar is bad, uh, what the long-term health implications for all of this are. And so it's, that's the kind of the problem with these kind of messages as well. They also just continue to spread confusion. And so that's the thing. So you, you're both kind of encouraged to be constantly checking what it is you're eating while actually having less and less of an idea of um, what is good for you and what isn't. And so that just really adds up to not a, not a very healthy debate. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the language they use is hilarious. So they, they don't just talk about the sugar content. They talk about the sugar that lurks in your food secretly like it was a, you know, Islamic extremist <laughs> waiting to pop out at you. <laughs> and uh, even one of the campaigns for this is called Give Up Loving Pop or Gulp. So, <laughs> write that down. Write that down, everyone. So, excuse me. Right. Uh, so, on to our final item, Simon Damchuk. Claire, you, you have views. I, I have views because I have debated Simon uh, several times, and he has been one of the most scurrilous and unapologetic uh, promoters of a panic around child abuses. Uh, he led the campaign against Cyril Smith. Basically, finding people guilty when they're dead uh, is his speciality. Uh, historic child abuse is kind of particular issue. And he was very unforgiving then when I had the debate about historic child abuse and evidence and so on. He said, what are you talking about? And talked about children being, you know, raped and abused everywhere you looked and so on and so forth. And now he finds himself at the, the centre of the storm and it would be so easy to just kind of have a sense of schadenfreude and say, yes, you know, couldn't have happened to a nicer fearmonger. On the other hand, I then think, oh, I now have to defend Simon Danjul because it is ludicrous, this assault on him. He has been humiliated and done over for having sent, you know, <laughs> sexy, inappropriate messages to a 17-year-old, a 17-year-old dominatrix who set herself up as a dominatrix at 15, allegedly, according to the papers. And But even if she wasn't, I mean, that's not the point. The point is, is that it is a perfectly legal thing to do. 
you might think, well, I wouldn't invite him around to meet my daughter. You might think, you know, he's a bit of a scumbag. You might think all sorts of things. But the idea that it's a kind of shocking example of something dodgy is actually... And and, and there's now been... There's now sort of all sorts of discussions about whether he... Uh, was involved in rape when he was married, all sorts of horrible accusations, which he then says, you can't just throw those accusations around. There's no evidence. And you think, yes, yes, I remember that debate. The The other thing is, is just, it's so insulting to young women. One of the things that's happened is, is that in all of the, the media coverage that I've seen, the, you know, particularly galling with Jon Snow on, you know, Channel 4 News saying in sort of very you know, a particular tone, you know, an older man and a younger woman. As though young women of 17 uh, are not capable of working out who they have love affairs with, who they have relationships with. And actually, I just want to put this out there, right? There is nothing wrong with older people having relationships with younger people. This is neither against the law nor against the laws of taste, right? Ask any number of female cougars whether we should be having this panic or not. It is utterly patronising to the young uh, women that might choose to fall in love with the George Clooney's of this world. You know, there's a lot of older men, let me tell you, that a lot of young women wouldn't mind having a relationship with. Without it, meaning they need to be protected. Uh, Simon Danjuk might not be one of them, but that's not the point. And on that happy note of people missing the serious point of a debate and focusing on the trivialities, uh, not something you'll find here at the Podcast of Ideas, I'd like to thank Claire and David for their contributions. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, please visit instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast to download them or subscribe to our feeds. Thank you very much. Thank you.